Peace be with you. Good morning. My name is Paul. I am one of the leaders here. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, if this is your first time here, we're, we want you to know that you're welcome here. We're so glad that you decided to, to join us for this time this morning. Uh, we look forward to getting to know you, to hearing your story, to sharing our story with you, um, and seeing uh, what God does as our paths intersect uh, at this moment in time. Today, we're in week two of a three-week series on the parables uh, from, from Mark chapter four. Uh, which is one of the first books in what we call the New Testament. Uh, It's the part of the Bible that tells the story of Jesus, how Jesus arrived on earth as a fulfillment really of all of God's covenant promises to his covenant people uh, and the implications of Jesus's life, death, resurrection, and ascension for really all of humanity. So today uh, is actually a significant day in the church calendar. It's called Ascension Sunday, which falls six weeks after Easter Sunday, uh, commemorating Jesus's ascension into heaven 40 days after his resurrection. Next Sunday is gonna be Pentecost Sunday, uh, which remembers the event of the Pentecost, the day soon after Jesus's ascension that the Holy Spirit came and filled his disciples in uh, what's called the upper room uh, in an event that essentially created the Spirit-filled New Testament church. And we actually preached on both the Ascension and Pentecost uh, a bit early this year. Taylor, the lead pastor here, uh, right here, is currently on sabbatical. He's in the second week of his three-month sabbatical. Uh, And the last sermon series before his sabbatical, the Lord led him to preach through Acts chapters one and two. He started with Acts chapter one, the Sunday after Easter, talking about the event of the Ascension, Jesus' Ascension, um, and the words, the last words that he gave to his people. Uh, And then he looked at, spent a few weeks in chapter two, looking at the Pentecost And so in a sense, we've just looked at these two events uh, a few weeks ago, which means today won't be a traditional Ascension Sunday sermon. But nevertheless, this three-week series in Mark 4 is not entirely out of place. The the reason Jesus ascended into heaven um, is that as he said himself in John 16, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus ascended into heaven so that he could send the Holy Spirit to indwell his people in a way that would clothe them with power on high, as he said, for the task that he sent them to do, the task of building his kingdom. And these parables that we're looking at in this three-week series are the parables of the kingdom. Um, Jesus teaches his disciple about the kingdom of God with words that were written down for you and me that we might understand a little bit more about the inner workings of the kingdom of God and how, in particular, it grows So last week, we looked at the parable of the sower. This week, we're gonna look at two short paragraphs that make up the text that I just read uh, in which Jesus talks about a lamp on a lampstand uh, and then a parable of a seed growing. And so with that, we're in Mark chapter four uh, and we'll be starting in verse 21. Here's my plan for this morning. We're gonna look, I think, at three things together, time permitting. First, we're gonna look at the first section. We're gonna look at the lamp on the stand, make a few observations from that. Second, we're going to look at the second section, this parable of the seed growing. We're going to make some observations from that. And then third, uh, we're going to close with a couple of points of application and be done. So let's jump in. To give a little bit of context, we're, we're kind of jumping in the middle of the story. Uh, we're in the middle of a string of parables that Jesus is telling uh, what he refers to in what Mark refers to in the beginning of chapter four as a very large crowd. This crowd that had gathered around Jesus uh, right next to the Sea of Galilee. It was so big that Jesus had actually got into a boat, pushed off from the shore so that his voice could carry over the water and be heard by everyone who had gathered around him. And what Jesus has been doing is he's been telling parables. He's been telling these stories 
that use situations from everyday life, like farming, fishing, housekeeping, uh, life with your family, and so on, uh, ordinary things to reveal truths about his kingdom, this thing he calls the kingdom of God. And so Jesus has just finished the parable of the sower, which I preached on last week. Uh, It talks about the struggle that seeds face, depending on the soil that they land in, uh, to grow and bear fruit. It's a parable that Jesus tells as a way of telling his followers about the battle that the kingdom of God faces as it advances in the world. And also uh, the battle that every human being faces uh, in hearing and receiving the word of God and and, and seeing it bear fruit in their lives. And Jesus finishes that parable right before this one, Uh, with an image that despite the struggle, despite the battle that is being waged, uh, the the word of God, the good news of the kingdom, nevertheless will take root and will bear an abundant harvest, 30-fold, 60-fold, even 100-fold. There's this miraculous picture. It would have been a miraculous harvest uh, in the the, the ears of his hearers who knew that 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 just didn't happen in this geography in this time. So in other words, even though there will be opposition to the kingdom of God, it will in due time not just grow, but flourish in a way that will exceed any expectation. And so it's this striking picture uh, that Jesus gives that he then follows with our passage for today uh, to talk about a lamp. Uh, he, he, he begins in verse 21 to talk about a lamp and a lampstand. So let me read verse, verse 21 one more time. And he says to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. Let me pause there. There are three things that I wanna point out for us in this first section of text, verses 21 through 25. Uh, And the first thing is this, right there in those first two verses. The first thing is at this point, uh, we see that the kingdom of God and Jesus's role in that kingdom are still for the most part hidden. Jesus breaks from his topic. This is a, a chapter about seed parables. And he, he gives this idea of light versus darkness, of secret hidden things versus things being brought into the light and being made known. And if you're familiar with the story of the Bible, you might recognize that this is actually a very common metaphor in the Bible for the kingdom of God and for how God works, describing it as a kingdom of light. The kingdom of God is often referred to as this kingdom of light, which stands in opposition to the kingdom of darkness, but which is a reality that has been shrouded in mystery ever since the fall of humanity and sin uh, back at the beginning of the Bible. And it's only bit by bit as the story of the Bible unfolds um, that the reality of this kingdom of God, this kingdom of light comes into increasing focus. Let me illustrate it this way. Uh, you might be familiar with Doctor Strange. It's one of the Marvel movies uh, whose storyline finds its way into the Avengers saga. It's about a a man named Doctor Stephen Strange uh, who's a former big shot neurosurgeon and his hands get kind of irreparably irreparably damaged in this horrible car crash that he gets into as a result of his pride. Uh, And the movie tells the story of his quest to heal himself using the science that he knows and the things of this world. Uh, And he eventually, though, gets plugged into this power that is not of this world, which he turns out to be uniquely gifted for. And as he trains, he advances quickly in this new power, eventually going on to fight battles battles that he never knew existed as his former life fades into the background. And I'm not going to go without, as much as I would like to go scene by scene, there's a lot of gospel in that movie. Um, Here's the point that I'm trying to make. Near the beginning of Doctor Strange, um, there's this pivotal scene right when he is on the verge of giving up on himself. He's tried a series of failed experimental procedures 
uh, when he hears about this paraplegic who, mysterious, who had mysteriously regained the use of his legs. It was a medical miracle. And so he tracks down this paraplegic and he finds this, para, this former paraplegic playing basketball and he says, how did this happen? And the paraplegic looks at him and says, there is a power out there that can fix your hands, that can heal your hands. And, uh, and, and so he sends him to this place across the world uh, to, to find this teacher um, who he says has access to the power. And so Dr. Strange, um, this, this moment on this basketball court with this paraplegic is in many ways the pivotal event that sends the rest of the movie kind of in motion. Uh, but as Dr. Strange walks into the door of this place halfway across the world, preparing to meet the head of what turns out to be this order of sorcerers, that's where not a perfect gospel uh, <laughs> metaphor, uh, he, he, Dr. Strange had no idea what was going to happen next. And I think that that moment in the movie, right, that moment uh, that sets the rest of the movie in motion but doesn't really reveal its ending quite yet is kind of what Jesus is getting at here. When Jesus talks about bringing a lamp in and placing it on a lampstand, when he talks about things being hidden in order to be made manifest, he's touching on this idea that there has been this heavenly reality beneath the surface of our reality for all of human history. That there's this kingdom of power and light for which God has been preparing all things and time itself uh, in order to set his plan in motion. And Jesus, who back in Mark chapter one had said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, was then and here in chapter four and throughout his earthly ministry, setting in motion the plot was, that was getting ready to unfold. So in the wording here, we can see that God is very purposeful in how he deals with what's called elsewhere the mystery of the kingdom. Um, it's referred to as, as certainly not to stay hidden, but eventually to be revealed. Nothing is hidden, it says, Jesus says, except to be made manifest. Nothing is secret except to come to light. And Jesus, the light of the world, has come into the world in order to shine the light of revelation into the darkness of the world. But with that said, at this point in the story, the way that Jesus talks about it, he makes it clear that the kingdom of God and Jesus' role in that kingdom remain yet hidden. They have yet to be made known. It'll happen soon, but it hasn't happened yet. That's the first thing we see in this section. The second thing is this. Uh, we see that the key to grasping what Jesus is saying uh, in these parables, uh, and really in his entire ministry, is at the expense of stating the obvious, hearing effectively. In verse 23, in the beginning of verse 24, Jesus makes this point very clear. He emphasizes it with this kind of redundant repetition that the kingdom is accessed by the ear. Verse 23, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he says to them, pay attention to what you hear. So he, he, he's repeating this idea of hearing with the ear. Uh, and the subject of this whole discourse, this whole chapter really, uh, is the difference between effective and ineffective hearing. It's only by hearing that you will catch what Jesus is saying. It's only by hearing that one gains access into the kingdom of God. And if you'd permit me to, to go in this direction for just a moment, this is nothing new. Ever since the creation of humanity in the Garden of Eden, God has always desired to have a people for himself, a people of the ear. Right? When he first created humanity, God gave them his word. He gave, them, he gave Adam and Eve his good and gracious command and commission. The fall of humanity in the Garden of Eden happened not through the ear, but through the eye. Satan, in the form of a snake, spoke to Eve. And do you remember what he said to her? He made her a promise. Genesis 3, 5, Satan says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, 
knowing good and evil. And if we read on, listen to the role that the eyes play in the event of the fall. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the first thing that happened, it says, then the eyes of both were opened. And from that moment on, all of humanity has lived life focused on what is pleasing to the eye. Riches, strength, beauty, pomp and circumstance, you name it. Ever since, humanity has been focused on what looks good. And also from that moment on, God has been calling his people back from living in accordance with what their eyes see to what they hear from him, their loving father. The wisdom, the word uh, with a capital W. For, for, for example, when God delivered his people out of Egypt, uh, which is the seminal kind of salvation event in the Old Testament, uh, delivered them out of slavery in Egypt, the Egypt was very much a kingdom of the eye, right? If you remember the pharaohs, the, the royalty all painted their eyes very boldly. Um, there, there was a focus in Egypt on beauty, on appearance. The eye itself, the eye of Horus, was uh, a symbol in Egypt of royal power and protection, and when God delivers them from this, this kingdom that is based around the eye, he, what does he do right away? He gives them his word. He gives them his law. He says, the first, there's, if you're familiar with the Shema, the, the, the first thing that, that, that Jews still today say when they wake up in the morning, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your heart with all your heart. You, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Hear, O Israel, hear. That's how, that's how God introduces himself. And on the story goes, God repeatedly forbids his people from making any image of him. Don't look for pleasure with your eyes. To lead his people, he instead gives his word. He doesn't send magicians or miracle workers. Primarily, he sends leaders who know and love his word, who meditate on it day and night, who minister it to their people, who teach it to their children. He sends prophets who are known best by the phrase, thus says the Lord. After Jesus' resurrection, when, when, when Thomas, you might be familiar with this scene, the apostle Thomas comes up to Jesus and says, I'm not gonna, or, or comes up to the other apostles and says, I'm not gonna believe until I see the risen Lord myself and place my hand in his side. And do you remember what Jesus does to, to doubting Thomas as he's referred to? Jesus actually graciously shows himself to Thomas and then says this, he says, have you believed because you've seen me? I tell you, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. In Romans 10, the Apostle Paul says, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And right after he says that, the Apostle Paul considers how we come to know the Lord. And he asks a series of questions. He says, how will they call on him of whom, uh, excuse me, him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach un uh, unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. God has always desired to have a people of the ear. And when Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, comes on the scene, he continues this theme. Verse 23, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Pay attention to what you hear, he says in verse 23. That's the second thing. Jesus is saying, listen. You must hear your way into the kingdom. And the third thing, which is very closely, re closely related to the second, is this. In these words, we see, I think, a clear invitation to come and discover the kingdom by experience. When Jesus says, pay attention to what you hear, 
He's inviting his hearers to dig, to seek for themselves the meaning of the parables that Jesus is telling. He elaborates, verse 24, and he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. The word measure that Jesus uses here is a term that refers to a container that's used to measure out amounts of grain. Uh, And the measuring process at this time is a very laborious one with often large quantities measured at any given time. And so the thrust of what Jesus is saying here is this. He says, if you make a hurried kind of rote search through my words, giving them merely a passing thought, then you will not find what you're looking for. But if you devote yourself to the process of measuring my words, to the measure that you use, it will be given to you. He says, pay attention, weigh what you hear, and you will find what you're looking for. My mind goes to Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Or you might also think of the parable of the persistent widow, this story of of a widow who keeps asking, keeps, keeps asking until she receives what she asks for. Jesus is saying in these words, he's saying, seek me. Seek me earnestly, seek me earnestly through my words. Pay close attention for in them, you will find the door to life. If your knock at the door of life is tentative or brief, then you will be left in doubt and disbelief. If you seek it though, if you truly seek it, selling everything you have to buy that field that you know has buried treasure, which is another story he tells, then you will find it. The it being, of course, the kingdom of God and Jesus, King Jesus himself. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. In all of this, Jesus is essentially saying this. I am going to hint at you that I am the one you've been waiting your whole lives for. Now it's up to you to pursue me hard enough to find out whether that's true. Several commentators are read on this, compared this to a game of hide and seek, which might sound trivial, but as I read their explanations, I think it's actually a helpful way to understand this. Right? The point of the game of hide and seek is the finding of a person who is hidden, which takes effort. If you picture a game of hide and seek with the seeker closing her eyes, counting, and then opening her eyes only to hear the, the, the hider say, I'm here, come get me, that would be a pretty lame game of hide and seek. You can think also uh, of really any relationship that you're in, whether a family, uh, friend, or romantic relationship. There are always hidden things in relationships that are hidden and waiting to be dug up in order to be revealed. Have you ever heard something along the lines of, I would have told you, but you never asked? Here, Jesus is inviting his hearers to ask. He's inviting you and me to search, to seek, because the kingdom of God is here. But by God's design, it's unfolding in a way Uh, that that is unfolding by way of his people, hearing his word and seeking him through it, seeking that they may find. So that wraps up our first point, the first section of text. There's there's more to be said there to be sure, but but we see there, I think, three, at least three things. First, uh, uh, while the kingdom of God and Jesus's role uh, are in that kingdom are soon to be revealed, they are, as of this point, still hidden. The second is the key to grasping the truth of the kingdom is to hear God's word. And third, that Jesus is inviting us to, through our hearing, dig in and seek after him, that we might discover the kingdom by our experience through him, informed by the Holy Spirit through his word. And let's move on now to the next section. 
the parable of the seed growing. Look with me, starting in verse 26. And Jesus said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. So in this parable, Jesus gives us this picture of a man scattering seed on the ground, waiting until it sprouts and grows, and then harvesting it. It would, of course, have been a very helpful metaphor in this primarily agrarian society. So let's think about what would have stuck out to Jesus' initial hearers. Look at what the farmer does. The farmer does two things in this process of cultivating crops. The farmer plants and he harvests. Verse 26, he scatters the seed on the ground. And then verse 29, when the grain is ripe, he puts in the sickle. And then in between those two things, the farmer waits and watches as he knows not how, the seed grows. People have been doing this for generations, year after year. They knew, among other things, this semi-helplessness that a farmer feels in planting seeds and just waiting. Who knows, says the farmer. Who knows whether this year will yield a fruitful crop? Who knows how much of the seed is good seed, how much rain we'll get, how tall the plants will grow, what quality the produce will be. As the earth produces by itself blade, ear, then full grain, we see that there's no work the farmer does in these particular processes. All the farmer can do is watch and wait until he sees the ripening of the seed and then he harvests. And in this, Jesus says, we get a glimpse of what the kingdom of God is like. So let me make a few specific observations here too. So for the first thing that I want us to see, look at just the first verse. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter the seed on the ground. So right off the bat, if we pause for a moment, uh, I think we're, we, 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 let this strike you at just how ordinary a thing Jesus is comparing the kingdom of God with. Right, of all the things that Jesus could have compared his heavenly kingdom to, he uses a painfully ordinary aspect of everyday life. As one commentator put it, a more banal comparison, a more, a more dull comparison could not have been imagined. The kingdom of God should be likened to something grand and glorious, to shimmering mountain peaks, to crimson sunsets, the opulence of potentates, the lusty glory of a gladiator. But Jesus likens it to seeds. But this really, uh, this really is right in line with Jesus' teaching about his kingdom all along. The kingdom of heaven is quite paradoxical, nearly illogical by our standards in so many ways. Jesus, the king of creation, came not to be served, but to serve. Rather than coming to conquer, Jesus came that he might be handed over to death and killed and by his death, give us life. He says that if anyone would seek to gain his life, he must first lose it. The last shall be first, the first last. Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom of God is full of paradoxes. Paradoxes, at least in our way of thinking. And even here in this humble comparison of the kingdom of God to a farmer scattering seed, Jesus is, I think, communicating something profound. Even in this small detail, I think Jesus wants us to see this. He wants us to see that God is not far off and detached in, grand, in, in, in his kind of grandiosity. God is intimately engaged with the everyday things of in life and not only engaged in, but displayed in all the world, including the seemingly mundane things of life. We're given, I think, a similar picture to this one in Proverbs chapter six. Proverbs, as you may know, is a book of the Bible that's about wisdom. It's, it's about the wisdom from heaven. 
right? It speaks about the glories of wisdom, how precious wisdom is above all things, how rulers rule by it, that prosperity is governed by it, that wisdom is more to be desired than anything else the world has to offer. And yet to find wisdom, we read in Proverbs 6, 6, go to the ant, consider her ways and be wise. The, this grand thing called wisdom that is more precious than anything, the, 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 the writer of Proverbs says, go to the ant. There you will find wisdom. Throughout the book of Proverbs, there are ordinary things of life talking about this glorious thing known as wisdom. And so my point here is that Jesus is inviting us here to see that everything in the world testifies to the kingdom of God. You've just been missing it. So listen, verse 23, again, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Lean in because in this story, there is more than you might think. Farmers, Jesus is saying, this has been right in front of you for your whole lives. So be careful (laughs) because if you're not, you'll, you'll miss the truth once again of the kingdom, just like you've been missing it all your life long. And so that's the first thing. God is present in all things, even this simple act of farming, testifying to the nature of his kingdom through the nature of how the world already works. So a man scatters seed on the ground, planting his field. He continues, verse 27. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. The second thing that I want us to see from this parable is this. I'm gonna spend a, a few minutes on this one. It's, it's very simple but it's so obvious that I think we might miss it. Um, Here it is. As as an older, wiser man once told me, there are things that only God can do for you and there's things that God won't do for you. Stick with me here for a moment. Let's start with the active role of the farmer. No farmer sits in his home and prays that God would uproot the weeds in his field and plant the seeds into his miraculously tilled soil. Right? No farmer looks out at the fields that are white, that are ripe for the harvest, and then gathers his family in the living room to say, let's pray that God would get these crops harvested, packaged, and sold in the market. That'd be silly. Right? And we'll get to the kingdom piece in just a moment, but let's think of personal application here. We know this is, this is true. Uh, uh, there's so many examples. If we need to lose weight or get in shape, we know that we need to hop, you know, hop to it. We need to change our diet. We need to start exercising. If we need to pass a test or speak with authority on some subject, we know that we need to study and learn about the thing that we're being tested on or speaking on. If we've offended somebody, we know that we need to go to them to ask for their forgiveness as a way of pursuing reconciliation and so on. If you're a Christian in the room, my question to you is this, how often do we ignore this principle with our spiritual lives? In Galatians 6, the apostle Paul writes this, He says, God is not mocked for whatever one sows that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. So Paul says that this agrarian metaphor works the same in the physical world as it does in the spiritual life. uh, Sowing and reaping are real tasks entrusted to farmers in the real world. And there is spiritual sowing and reaping entrusted to real people in their real spiritual lives. And this plays out in a variety of ways. Consider, just for one example, consider the disciplines. What are known as the spiritual disciplines. If you wanna grow in your knowledge of God and the gospel, if you wanna grow in maturity in Christ, then you need to feed yourself on God's word. 
if you are not formed and fed by God's word, then at best you will be a stunted, unfruitful Christian. Whether you're a pastor or a new believer, giving God's word regular time to speak to you, to cut you to the heart, to change you, to test you, to feed you and strengthen you, then you cannot expect to bear fruit like a healthy plant. In your battle against sin, if you're not pausing to name your sins one by one in repentance before God, and also, as we see in the book of James, in confession to trusted brothers or sisters with regularity, then you probably shouldn't wonder at why you are not getting stronger in fighting those sins. There's many personal examples of how this can play out. There are things, centrally important things in your life that only God can do for you. And you must know that anything good that you can do is predicated on God's gracious work in you. But even as God works in you, his invitation for us is to jump in and be active participants, co-laborers with him in our lives and in the world around us. Because you see, this is how the kingdom of God according to Jesus here, is breaking into the world. God is renewing the world bit by bit, little by little, in part through the work of his farmers. Right? While ultimately God is the one who is in control and is the one working to bring about his purposes, to bring his purposes to their intended ends, he has invited us to participate in the process with him. This is a glorious invitation. As the farmer plants seeds and puts in the sickle for the harvest, so too do we sow seeds of the gospel in the world around us and the people that we love, leading them, Lord willing, towards Christ, folding them into our community, walking alongside them as they grow in Christ-likeness. So how is the gospel spread in the world? God empowers his people to preach the gospel to others. How does God often, so often provide materially for the needs of his people? He gifts his people with resources that he empowers them to steward generously for the sake of caring for each other. How does God feed us with his word? He gives it to us and then he invites us to meditate on it, pray through it, store it up in our minds that it might nourish us and guide us. Do you see what I'm getting at? Let me put it this way. We believe in the sovereignty of God. Uh, that is that God is totally in charge of everything in his creation from the large scale affairs of the universe and the geopolitical uh, interactions of, of nations in the world, uh, all the way down to the small scale details of every aspect of your and my lives, including every aspect of the salvation of individuals. God is totally in control. That belief might lead us to conclude that since God is in control, it doesn't really matter what we do because God is going to get his way anyway. With what Jesus is saying here though, it's clear that this is not the case. God is sovereign, absolutely. And as a part of his sovereign plan, he has chosen us as his means for seeding and harvesting his fields. When God saves us, in other words, he saves us not simply as onlookers watching what he's doing in the world, not even simply as puppets to be used passively in some sort of cosmic puppet show, but as adopted sons and daughters in his family with real responsibility who get to take real joy as we work alongside him for the purposes of his kingdom. God is fully in control, and while only God can cause the growth, we must not blow past the fact here that he has given us real tasks to perform, a valuable part to play with respect to cooperating with God in the, in the operation and growth of his kingdom. Some people believe that personal salvation is the end goal of Christianity. But while Personal salvation is certainly of central importance. That couldn't be further from the truth. Personal salvation is not the end. 
it is the means to a totally different end. A right relationship with God, which looks here and everywhere else in the Bible, like full participation in God's kingdom as ministers of reconciliation, living for the sake of the mission that he has given us in the world around us. On the other hand, though, this also ought to cultivate in us a sense of real deep humility. In 1 Corinthians chapter three, the apostle Paul says this, referring to himself and another preacher in the early church. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. I can't prove this to you from the Bible, but I think that when Paul wrote those words, this teaching of Jesus is what he had in mind. And Paul got it. While we have been invited to play a real part in God's expansion of his kingdom, we must remember that as disciples of Christ, as followers of Jesus, we are invited into a work that is not our work. We are invited to fulfill a task that is not possible for us to fulfill on our own. We scatter seed and then we wait for the harvest. This is what the kingdom of God is like, Jesus is saying. In the kingdom of this world, power and kingdom expansion are sought through violence, through domineering, through going out and seizing for yourself what you want. But the advance of the kingdom of God, as described here in this parable, is described as really a quiet, gradual growth. Gradual, but purposeful and powerful in and of itself. See, despite the farmer's absence and even ignorance after he plants these seeds, the earth produces by itself. The life of quiet yet confident, humble service is what Jesus is looking for. The kingdom will grow. It'll grow in accordance with God's plan and in God's timing by the faithful work of God alone, who alone can bring growth. I think we can take at least two points of application for that, for, for, from that point. One, on, on a grand scale, Jesus' disciples were eager to see the, full, the, the fullness of the kingdom of God ushered in immediately. And so in Jesus' words here, he gently corrects their expectations. Right? The kingdom of God has already come, Jesus is saying. He says, the kingdom of God's already come and it is spreading. It was spreading at that time and it is continuing to spread even today. And it spread rather than be marked, being marked by fire and fury and spectacle is one of quiet, gradual growth. Notice these seemingly extra details that Jesus includes. Verse 26, the earth produces by itself First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. Jesus includes these extra details, I think, outlining the gradual growth of the seed to show us that the revelation of the kingdom of God likewise will be gradual. So Jesus is encouraging his followers, including you and me, to be patient, trusting that God is in control and that what is now only in seed or maybe blade form will one day turn in God's timing into an abundant, a super abundant harvest. The second point of application there, I think, on a, on a more micro scale is this. I think that we hear here that when you share the gospel, when you scatter the seed of the gospel on the ground to which God has called you, it may seem initially like it's fallen like a dud. Right? But the way God works is that you may not see it immediately. You may not even see it for a long time. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a process that you know nothing about. Growing you know not how in the heart of a person or people. We cannot change hearts. We cannot convince people that the gospel is true. What we can do 
is to do the part that God has entrusted to us. Casting seed, telling people about him, laying our lives down for the lost that we might supplement the gospel message that we preach with a life of faithful living and watch as God bears the fruit in the lives of the people around us. Proverbs 16, Proverbs 16, verse three says, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Do what God has entrusted to you and commit it to the Lord and he will do it. Trust God. The third thing that I wanna point out for us in this parable is this, let me ask a question. Where is this seed supposed to come from? If you and I are the farmer, right, and we are to have seed to scatter, where is this seed supposed to come from? Simple biology question, where do seeds come from? They come from fruit. The fruit of any tree is what houses the seeds, and so how is fruit born? Jesus says this in John 15. He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he continues, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. But then verse eight, by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So how's fruit born? It's born on branches. And Jesus in that passage describes you and me as branches. The question, does fruit come from branches scattered on the ground? No. Only those branches which are attached to the tree, to the vine are those that bear fruit. If you don't know Jesus, Jesus' clear invitation to you this morning through all of these words is to seek after him because if you remain where you are, you are described as a withering branch that is one day to be gathered together with the rest of the withering branches thrown into the fire and burned, John 15, six. I know we're, measure, we're mixing metaphors here. Please forgive me. We're talking about seeds and a farmer and now I'm talking about trees and vines with fruit. But here's the point. We're invited into the kingdom of God to be farmers who sow seeds and reap the harvest. What is the way of entrance into this kingdom work of farming? Not through works, not through cleaning yourself up for dealing with your shame on your own, not through changing the world for the better for as many people as possible. There is nothing that you can and nothing that you must do in order to enter the kingdom because all that is needed for you to enter the kingdom has been done by Jesus Christ himself, the man who said these words. He lived the perfect life that you and I were made to live but are unable to. And he bore the punishment for your sin in mind that we deserved. He was cut off so that you and I could be grafted in. He lived his life, died his death, rose again to show power over death so, so that he could remove the wall that was separating you and me from the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is what we were created for. And Jesus did this so that all we might do with ears opened graciously by the Holy Spirit as he calls to us through his word and through sermons like this, Jesus did all that he did so that all we must do is receive by faith the word of the gospel. And upon receiving his gospel by faith, God welcomes us into his kingdom. There's nothing else that needs to be done. We are grafted by faith into the vine, which is Christ himself, that we might abide in him, which is what we were made to do.
By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples, Jesus said. That is what we were, we were made for. And all that's keeping us from abiding in that vine is the word of the gospel to be received by faith. Adam and Eve were once created and told, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They failed, all of humanity fails of our own devices. But here, Christ has made this commission possible again. This bountiful harvest of fruit-bearing people. Jesus says, come. And so as I close, I wanna leave us with three things. Don't miss what Jesus is saying in this passage. One, hear and seek. The kingdom of God is here. It's spreading now. It's being revealed to people like you and me that we might come to know our savior and join in the work that he has called us to. Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be open. Jesus is waiting for you. He's calling for you now. So listen. Let he, let he who has an ear, let him hear. Two, those of us who would consider ourselves Christians, hear this. Trust in Jesus and press on to the mission that God has called you to. Right? The kingdom is coming through no good of our own, but using our faithfulness as a real vehicle. Right? Salvation is not simply a ticket to heaven. But it does not mean, when I say that, it does not mean that the kingdom is now on your shoulders. Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There is work to be done, but this is the work that you were made for. Not taking the throne of the universe, but joining in the work of the kingdom under our good king who made us. And let us do this in community so that as we go through seasons of leading toward one extreme or the other, our brothers and sisters can call us back into a right understanding of the kingdom of God. We are simply farmers who sow seed that come as an overflow of our life with him and then we watch and wait with patience as God does his work. And finally, remember, remember why you can even trust, trust Jesus' words in the first place. This Jesus who spoke the words of this parable fulfilled what was necessary to see the fruit born by this parable and the truth that he described, he, he fulfilled this to a T. He became the branch that was cut off so that we could be grabbed, grafted in. He was the seed who was thrown into the ground and died that he might bear fruit and that fruit being you and me and all who would come to him by faith. Know that, fix your eyes on Jesus. Hear these words of Jesus that you might hear and respond in faith, knowing that Jesus of anyone is trustworthy. This is what we were placed here to do. So by God's grace and in his power, so may we. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for each other and for your word. Thank you for what you are doing in our midst and how you are working now, even now, right now in the hearts that are here in this room. We love you and we trust you and we ask for more. We confess, Lord, that we don't understand your kingdom. We don't get it. We, there are depths yet to plumb in these parables and in every word that you have given us. And so let us, help us, Lord. Holy Spirit, ignite a fire within us that wants, that is thirsty, hungry for more and more of you through your word. Give us ears to hear.
the message of the gospel for us and make us fruitful, please God. We don't want to be fruitful for our own sake. We want to be fruitful for your sake. We want you to get the glory. In this place and in every place one day, may you receive the reward for your suffering, Lord Jesus. We love you in Jesus' name. We pray, amen.